Some time ago, a friend of mine was kind enough to reach out and ask me to watch and react to a YouTube video he had been linked to through a Facebook group. Usually I have serious doubts when evidence is being presented through YouTube, but wanting to help, I watched a few parts of it and gave my response. Looking back, though, I actually wanted to take more time to address the video mainly because it bears the resemblance of the same doomsday New World Order vibe that has been plaguing health debates for quite a while. The YouTube video is from a journalist called Corbett, who pins his opinion on anything from 9-11, vaccines, GMOs, pesticides, New World Order or anything else that might get clicks. The subject of this video being the future of vaccines got me initially excited, which unfortunately soon after was squashed. Reading through the transcript, I'll try to see if I can explain why I was disappointed. As we delve into this, bear in mind that neither I nor Corbett have any biological degree to back our claims, thus the only information we have is what's available online. This new normal with which we are being threatened brings with it great uncertainty. Uncertainty over work, uncertainty over travel, uncertainty over what our lives will look like on the other side of this great reset. But there is one thing that we can be certain about. If the Gateses and the Fauci's and the representative of the international medical establishments get their way, Life will not return to normal until the entire planet is vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2. And for good reason. SARS-CoV-2 has been shown to be double as infectious as a normal influenza, while case fatality rates from John Hopkins suggest an average of 2.1% fatality, Mexico having about 9%, and Denmark having about 0.8%. UK has about a 2.7% case fatality rate, and the US has about 1.7%. The picture suggests that with a virus that's so aggressively infectious, infecting around 2.2 to 3 people per infection, life cannot return to normal unless we have a widespread immunity, either through a proportionate amount of people being vaccinated or being infected and survived. A way to understand this is through, for example, the normal fatality risk. This is the expected mortality per week for different age groups of a population. In an analysis from British Medical Journal, the conclusion was as follows. For the general population, the risk of catching and then dying from COVID-19 during 16 weeks of pandemic was equivalent to experiencing around five weeks extra normal risk for those over 55, decreasing steadily with age to just two extra days for school children. That means that last year had the equivalent amount of deaths as 52 weeks of normal fatality, plus five extra weeks solely due to COVID-19 for people aged 55 or over. 
The plan is to rush a new generation of experimental vaccines to market and deliver them at warp speed before any long-term testing has been ever attempted. What many do not understand yet, however, is that the vaccines that are being developed for SARS-CoV-2 are unlike any vaccines that have been used on human population before. And as radically different as these vaccines appear, they represent only the very beginning of a complete transformation of vaccine technology that is currently taking place in research lab across the planet. A term I'll be using quite frequently during this podcast is something called preaching to the choir. Essentially, it means presenting an argument or an opinion to people who already agrees with it. It's a commonly used technique to further your point by listing things you know the people listening to you would agree on, i.e. if you think the homification of your children's end with education on homosexuality, it's only the beginning would be a presentable argument for people who are afraid their children being homosexual. For people who know sexuality doesn't have anything to do with education about sexuality, the argument sounds rather stupid. The reason I am mentioning this is because we're going to stumble upon this technique being used throughout Corbett's videos. If you're a vaccine skeptic, hearing someone talk about the vaccine is unlike any vaccine that's come before, or they represent only the very beginning of a complete transformation, it speaks to your biased interpretation of vaccination. But you were already skeptical, so this doesn't challenge your view. I'm going to lift the veil early here, because COVID uses quite some time to get to the fact that this vaccine is the first approved mRNA vaccination. It's not something that's never been tried before, but it's the first time it's been approved for distribution. Basically, you inject the messenger RNA that carries the transcript of a single protein from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The mRNA then sends the transcript to production. In this case, the transcript teaches the system to make what's called a spike protein found on the surface of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Because our immune system doesn't recognize this protein, it destroys it and creates an antibody. What this means is, when the SARS-CoV-2 virus enters the body, the spike protein gets recognized quickly and there's already an available antibody template to begin distribution of antibodies, which means the risk of the virus multiplying aggressively is diminished. Fewer symptoms, shorter potential sick periods, less threatening symptoms. Now, with that being said, let's dive further down the rabbit hole. News stories were not generated on the back of publicly accessible data, but literal corporate press release. This announcement by press release style of corporate self-reporting was immediately exposed as a sham when AstraZeneca was found to have given an unintentionally lower dose to one group of trial participants then touted the results of the smaller dose group without clarifying the confusion. First of all, 
a thing that's less obvious than what one can imagine, journalists are not omnipotent. They know how to cover a certain thing based on the available material. So usually when a scientific discovery or study is getting attention from the media, it's based on either a press release or an interview with a press correspondent. Simply because journalists don't know about immunology, oncology, virology, epidemiology or any other scientific scope of research, they use correspondence. This is also around the time I started questioning if this 40 plus minute video was just going to be preaching to the choir. Corbett furthermore talks without any future sight saying news stories were not generated on the back of publicly accessible data. Luckily that study has been released on December the 31st in New England Journal Medicine. Updates to the studies has been released by Pfizer while the underlying data has been analyzed in roles by FDA and EMA. The CNBC article about AstraZeneca would be a lot more interesting if this was a vaccine that was released based on the study mentioned in the article. The fact is that the study was being peer-reviewed as per protocol and it was discovered that a small group unintentionally received the lower dose of the vaccine followed by a full dose. Reading through the whole article, a part that seems to be left out was when Sir John Bell said the full data will be published in a medical journal so people can examine it. Taking snippets of data is not a helpful way to make an analysis of what's actually going on. Which is true. Taking only a part you find interesting is dishonest. What possibly had happened becomes apparent if you read the initial study published in The Lancet on November 18th. In the study, the researchers hypothesized that seniors in the age group of 70 plus might have a more severe reaction to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Thus, in the study, different age groups received different doses of the initial boosters before getting a full dosage. As these age groups possibly persist on the back of that study, a possibility of an age group unintentionally receiving a lower dosage of the vaccine than intended would have been a possibility. The study in question has later been published on the 8th of December in where it's clearly addressed. A subset in the UK trial received half a dose as their first dose, brackets low dose, brackets ends, and a standard dose as their second dose. I don't want to slam on the table and call what Corbett is doing so far dishonest. The data he had available to him isn't the same as I have now over a month later. But expecting that something sinister or dishonest is going on doesn't draw on the actual evidence available. The latest available citation from Corbett's video is from the 21st of November. Thus, I expect Corbett has been able to find the same article as me from before that date. I just need to warn the listeners, from here on out, things become a little Dunning-Kruger. 
Granted, I'm not a medical researcher, this is not my field of expertise, but I have a hunch that neither is Corbett, because from here on out we begin to see examples of certain principles simply not being understood or being presented in the wrong way. The success of these vaccines is not being measured by the ability to prevent infection with SARS-CoV-2, as many in the general public believe, but merely to lessen the severity of the symptoms associated with COVID-19, like coughs and headaches. COVID includes the beliefs of the general public in this segment, though, in my opinion, a kangaroo court shouldn't be the one to decide if a vaccine is effective or not. A vaccine is not like a pair of sunglasses or sunscreen which protects your eyes by averting or absorbing UV light. They work as an early warning system to the immune system. In some cases, you use a weakened virus, which can't multiply, something that Corbett will talk about later. The body attacks this weakened virus and creates an antibody template, which can then be used to create antibodies if the said virus enters the body again. Think of it as a bouncer having a list of names and faces that's not allowed into the club. If one tries to enter, it's simply rejected. If one is found inside, one is quickly isolated and ejected from the club, much quicker than if the bouncer didn't have a list of names and faces. So if the bouncer association printed a list of troublemakers, even if the bouncer hadn't seen that person before, that person would be much easier to identify. They might still be able to cause a bit of trouble, but nothing close to what they would be able to cause if the Bouncer Association didn't make the list. Without ever seeing the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the body now have its name and face. If it enters the body, the immune system is going to be able to deal with the virus much quicker. That gives less severe symptoms shorter amount of sick days and thus a shorter period one can infect others. Furthermore, COVID doesn't present the endpoints of the study accurately. The first primary endpoint was the efficacy of the vaccine against confirmed COVID-19 cases with onset at least seven days after the second dose in participants who had been without serologic or virologic evidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection up to seven days after the second dose. The second primary endpoint was the efficacy in participants with and participants without evidence of prior infection. The first primary endpoint was the efficacy of the vaccine against confirmed COVID-19 with onset of at least seven days after the second dose in participants who had been without serologic or virologic evidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection up to seven days after the second dose. The second primary endpoint was efficacy in participants with and participants without evidence of prior infection. Confirmed COVID-19 was defined according to the FDA criteria 
as the presence of at least one of the following symptoms that includes fever, new or increased cough, new or increased shortness of breath, chills, new or increased muscle pain, new loss of taste or smell, sore throat, diarrhea or vomiting combined, this is the important part, combined with a respiratory specimen obtained during the symptomatic period or within four days before or after it that was positive for SARS-CoV-2 by nucleic acid amplification based testing either at the central laboratory or at the local testing facility. Major secondary endpoints included the efficacy of the vaccine against severe COVID-19 cases. Severe COVID-19 cases is defined by the FDA by confirmed COVID-19 with one of the following additional features. Clinical signs at rest that are indicative of severe systemic illness, respiratory failure, evidence of shock, significant acute renal, hepatic or neurologic dysfunction, admission to an intensive care unit or death. So in the end, what was tested was not just if the vaccine reduced its symptoms, but the efficacy against COVID-19, and that is with a specimen, a respiratory specimen, that was positive for SARS-CoV-2. Thirdly, the studies are touted as involving tens of thousands of people, but in Pfizer's trial, only 170 of them were reported as being diagnosed with COVID-19 during the trial. Of those, 162 were in the placebo group and 8 were in the vaccine group. From this, it is inferred that the vaccine prevented 140 54 over 162 people from developing the disease, or 95%. But, as even the British Medical Journal points out, a relative risk reduction is being reported, not absolute risk reduction, which appears to be less than 1%. I'm going to start this response by giving a small education about what relative and absolute risk is because I don't think everyone knows what that means. Relative risk is the probability of an outcome in one group compared with the outcome of another group. In the case of the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine, the relative risk is based on 162 cases of COVID-19 in the control group over the eight cases in the case group. When addressing the relative risk, you divide the eight cases with the 162 cases and you get 0.04 or a relative risk reduction about 95%. In comparison, absolute risk is the risk you have of getting a certain disease. You have to take the number of cases, divide them by the amount of participants then subtract the two numbers. This means if you have an amount of participants and an amount of cases per group, you are able to calculate the absolute risk reduction as well as the numbers needed to treat. There can be many reasons 
why the absolute risk of the study is less than 1%. Some that come to mind could be inclusion or exclusion criteria to participate, the individual country's response to COVID-19, the type of people who participate in vaccine trials, and the demographic areas of recruitment. An article that's also written in the British Medical Journal, uh, Peter Dushy, whom the quoted a relative risk reduction is being reported, not absolute risk reduction, talks about a clear reason as to why the absolute risk reduction seems to be less than 1%. The question is whether the trials are recruiting people at a high risk. The study protocol suggests this intention, but sample size calculations were apparently based on the expectation of a very low event rates in the control arm, around 1% a year for some trials. If these predictions are accurate, 99% of participants receiving a placebo will not develop symptomatic COVID-19 over the next year, leading to a large number needed to treat to benefit estimates. Now that's a very different picture than what Corbett is trying to paint by talking about absolute risk reduction being under 1%. The article goes further into this, also mentioning that targeting people at low risk may also cause the participants to not represent the full society. This is a much different take than the one Corbett is trying to paint when he talk about absolute risk reduction being less than 1%. The article goes even further into this, also mentioning that targeting people at low risk may also cause the participants not to represent the full society. The article Corbett mentions from the British Medical Journal is also authored by Peter Dushy, and he is rigorous in critiquing companies not disclosing their data. He has made a well-written piece about the dangers of putting all eggs in one basket before we know the full data release, and that is correct and also the reason why political figures or kangaroo court shouldn't be the ones to argue that vaccination is viable or not. In the meantime, on the 31st of December, the full dataset has been released. Given it's now available, it will be interesting to see what Peter Dashi says. And until then, I advise you to read his blog post on the British Medical Journal. It brings up some good points that have to be addressed during Project Warp Speed or EMA's fast-track vaccination. Fourthly, the trials are still ongoing, although several countries have now issued emergency use authorization, allowing these companies to begin distribution of these vaccines to the public. The stage three trials of the vaccine are ongoing with several of the planned endpoints for the data not being collected for 24 months after injection. As a result, as even the UK's own Information for UK Healthcare Professionals pamphlet regarding the Pfizer vaccine points out, animal reproductive toxicity studies have not been completed, meaning that it is unknown whether COVID-19 mRNA vaccine has an impact on fertility. I'm 
going to mainly focus on the last part of the argument, because answering the first part about trials becomes more of a politically motivated debate about vaccine trials and how it's usually done and how it's done this time. Operation Warp Speed and EMA's Fast Track Vaccine Development has their own website with Q&A sections and detailed information about how and why. The biggest part to take away is the three phases of clinical trials are all done before the vaccine is approved for distribution. But with a large grant, a direct approval to list participants and distribution during large-scale production cuts the time needed for development down by a lot. Also, given that both FDA and EMA have been able to read the data rollingly through the study, means that they are able to see if there's any trends going in a positive and a negative direction, and they don't need to wait for it to be publicly available to determine if a vaccine works or not. And since the Pfizer vaccine isn't recommended during pregnancy and for children under the age of 16, the vaccine is getting distributed to those we know are safe. That being said, just because it is unknown whether a vaccine has an impact on fertility, it is not the same as saying that it has an unknown impact on fertility. It means it hasn't been explicitly tested. In the same way, we haven't explicitly tested if watching 5 hours of YouTube for a month has an impact on fertility either, but that doesn't mean that it has. And most importantly, as incredible as this headlong rush to push an experimental vaccine on the majority of the world's population is, it is even more incredible when it's revealed that Moderna and Pfizer's vaccines are not in fact vaccines as anyone in the general public understands them. They are mRNA vaccines, a novel method of vaccination that has never before been approved for human use. Alright, do you remember when I said in the beginning of this debunked cast that it would be a trend to talk about preaching to the choir? And this is when it begins to become relevant. You see, an mRNA vaccine is not an experimental vaccine. It is a vaccine, period. Calling it experimental borders on the same type of thinking as the argument it is just a theory, in that the definition of the word is very different from what is expected when hearing it. Experimental vaccine means a vaccine used in experiment, i.e. used in studies. The polio vaccine or the MMR vaccine is not experimental vaccines, but during the trials, clinical and laboratory trials, they were experimental vaccines. An experimental treatment is a treatment that has not been proven to have an effect. The Pfizer vaccine is not an experimental vaccine because the studies have been made and the governing bodies have approved them for medical use. They are, by definition, not experimental. 
This is also the point COVID relieves the tension on what makes this vaccine unlike any others before it, because it's the first proved mRNA vaccination, like how the Toyota Prius was unlike any other cars before it, being the first mass-produced hybrid car. It's not a new technology, electric cars were first invented back in the early 1800s, neither is it the first time it's been tested, but it's the first time it's been mass-produced. mRNA vaccines have been tested since 2012. You could say they were experimental vaccines at this point, but haven't been approved for production, maybe because they didn't yield conclusive results, because there were already a developed vaccine available, so new progress isn't prioritized, or because large-scale clinical trials haven't been started yet. This doesn't mean the mRNA vaccine is anything other than a new method, just like YouTube was new back in 2008. The next segment of the video is just vaccination history, alluding to the fact that vaccines protect the body simply by introducing a much more harmless pathogen that resembles a harmful virus. Some of the vaccination ways mentioned was inhaling scabs with smallpox or exposing people to bovines with cowpox and thus resembling a much more harmful smallpox virus to the body. As I described in the beginning, the whole point of vaccination is to alarm the body of a certain pathogen so the body has an antibody template available for production should the dangerous pathogen enter the body. mRNA vaccines simply introduce a transcript to produce a harmless part of a virus that triggers the immune response you'd expect from an already known vaccine or from, you know, being infected. Now I just want to mention the next part without analyzing it too much mainly because there isn't any meat on this part. It's basic preaching to the choir using the words he has already established this mRNA vaccine represents. Rust, experimental, pushed by pharmaceutical manufacturers and corporate press. Any and all questions about this rushed experimental vaccine technology are being labeled by the pharmaceutical manufacturers and the corporate press that runs on the advertising dollars as anti-vax misinformation and being actively censored. But despite this straw man argument that opposition to the vaccine comes solely from ignorant members of the public who are worried about being injected with microchips, there are general and genuine concerns about the long-term safety of these vaccines coming from within the scientific community and even from whistleblowers from within the ranks of the big pharma manufacturers themselves. Questions regarding the mRNA vaccine are being labeled as anti-vax misinformation is the narration Corbett wants to push, while also citing Peter Doshi, John Bell and other medical professors who are raising concerns about the speed of how the mRNA vaccine is being developed and approved. 
none of these are being censored or silenced. The piece from Peter Dashi is still up on the British Medical Journal. Corbett does know this, as the next sentence talks about concerns from the scientific community. This time though, it has nothing to do with Peter Dashi's blog post on the BNJ, but people with a much bigger political agenda. Wolfgang Wodak has been in the PACE committee, where he motioned for investigation of the H1N1 pandemic based on it not being any deadlier than the seasonal flu, calling the pandemic fake. Wodak is then being huddled together with Michael Yeadon, who viewed the COVID-19 pandemic to be essentially over in the UK around the 16th of October. Michael Yeadon is a former employee at Pfizer, meaning that without additional knowledge, rolling through a YouTube video and not pausing it every second minute to fact check, this seems promising. But there's some disturbing parts about Vodak and Yeadon, in that they're both getting name dropped without any real reason for fame. Vodak is a doctor, in the sense that he has a medical degree, then closed his practice at the age of 48 and went into politics. The motion to investigate the 2009 pandemic wasn't approved. The fact is, nothing was fake about the H1N1 pandemic, but the political decision made was misguided, buying into the worst case scenario. Nature, another scientific magazine, has a wonderful article based on the precautions made and what would have been a better solution. Vodak has also been on the end of pushing for strict labeling of GMO and calling for certain GMO-free zones. And as I am preaching for my own choir, I just want to reiterate that being skeptical is well and fine, but being dismissive in the face of evidence is not being skeptical. Nothing suggested that the H1N1 pandemic was faked more than mismanaged, as nothing suggested that strict labeling of GMOs and GMO-free zones could fix natural baselines. Furthermore, Michael Yeadon hasn't worked in Pfizer for nine years, not even close to being a part of the team that developed the Pfizer vaccine. He was a part of an arm of Pfizer based in the UK that was closing shop. He could then either explore other jobs in Big Pharma but opted to work on a drug for eczema under the name Ciaco back in 2016-17. The drug drew attention of Swiss pharma group Novartis and was under development there until it was ditched in June 2020 due to not showing conclusive enough endpoints and thus not being able to move from phase 2 to phase 3. This means, should Corbett refer to Yeadon as a whistleblower, he will not ever be a whistleblower for anything that Pfizer has made about this vaccine for COVID-19. Furthermore, Michael Yeadon wasn't fired for exposing Big Pharma or Pfizer in any way, neither did he decide to leave because of what was happening inside the labs of Pfizer. He was simply being relieved of duty 
because the building he was working in, the arm of Pfizer that he was working in, was closing. Now, these two don't seem to actually have anything to do with the Pfizer vaccine. One has a dubious history of mistrusting pharmaceutical companies, the other had a loss around 500 million pounds on a drug that had been in development since 2016, maybe even before, then getting cut loose since it wouldn't even begin making sales before as early as 2024 if it met the endpoints of phase 2. The last thing I want to see when two shady characters walk in is someone I know for a fact is a shady character. So when the next segment involves Vaxxed director Del Bigtree, I can be certain that whomever is involved with him is going to be discrediting any type of vaccination. Up to this point, all information has been laid out as a pathway to Wukong. It has all led to the moment where the big picture is unveiled. After talking about Del Bigtree, there is essentially no way out. So from this part onwards, the carefully laid out information about a rushed experimental vaccine that's been pushed by corporate press releases without having the absolute risk data available, whatever that means, right? Questions being labeled as anti-vax in misinformation and straw man's being used to claim it's all about microchipping, we're now presented with a lot of rapid-fire choir preaching. mRNA vaccines now hijack your body, even though the body simply does what it has always done. Adenovirus from chimpanzees being used to express SARS-CoV-2 spike protein are suddenly a problem even though Corbett earlier talked about how cowpox was being used to express smallpox, hence vaccines being derived from the Latin vaca, meaning cow. ADE gets mentioned, as it usually does, without mentioning that this is something that is being assessed during the developmental stages of a treatment, so it's usually part of an experimental drug or vaccine. No approved vaccine has inconclusive data about the risk of ADE and there's actually an excellent paper about this from Nature that I'd like to recommend. As this section comes to a close, the grand scheme comes into place as the listeners is suddenly getting pulled into the Nuremberg Code from 1947 and the freedom to refuse experimental medical procedure. Inserting enough doubt into listeners about a rushed vaccine that's been untested, leaving the public to be the live guinea pigs means we're now susceptible to the idea that we are getting an experimental drug. But this is not an experimental medical procedure. An experimental medical procedure is defined as either A, not proven by scientific evidence to be effective, or B, not accepted by healthcare representatives as effective. Since Pfizer's vaccine has been proven by scientific evidence to be effective, it is, by definition, not an experimental medical procedure. 
in the meantime between this YouTube video and now the report has even been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Even if it wasn't, based on the ongoing result from phase 3 trials, FDA can decide that the evidence is conclusive enough to accept it as effective because they are a healthcare representative. From here the rabbit hole expands. Corbett begins talking about tracking who has been vaccinated and in that forgetting that schools can require certain vaccinations to have been administered before attending or requirements of a certain vaccination before traveling to certain countries. If you are going to Australia or China, you are required to have a yellow fever vaccine certificate. If you go on the websites like CDC, NHS or any other national health department websites and search for vaccination of children and pregnancy, you quickly find out that vaccinations rarely are recommended for these groups either. Reasons for this ranges from the public being reluctant to potentially danger their children or expected children, to data being inconclusive of safety and thus not being recommended until the scientific data can conclude on safety. Right now, one of the biggest problems facing research in cannabinoids is the lack of first try participants. If you can't enlist participants, it's very hard to have solid data set that can be used to say something about the general public. The CDC, for example, doesn't recommend vaccinations against measles, HPV, live flu vaccinations and varicella and travel vaccines like yellow fever, typhoid uh, fever and Japanese encephalitis if you are pregnant. Now, instead of having a paper certificate ready, your vaccination information could just be ready on your smartphone, making it much easier to obtain certain information without needing to go through five drawers of paper. Now the shrivel about vaccination passports being something out of the ordinary, uh, as the COVID-19 vaccine probably will be a requirement for travel into most countries for year two continues for quite a while, COVID name drops things like ID2020 initiatives and the IBM's CLEAR initiative, both being mostly focused on developing countries where identification and health availability is a great concern. For someone like me, who can see reason behind being able to identify how large a part of your country has been receiving the MMR vaccine, making sure that no one has got it twice, being able to register potential unknown areas like homeless people, talking about online registration of vaccinations seems like a novel approach. But I expect that if you're concerned with the government accessing or using your data for some sinister purpose, it's easy to agree with the notion that a vaccine pass is a horrendous idea. Which means this whole part is just preaching to the choir. If the listener already agrees identification and registration are bad, no new information has been acquired and no opinion has been challenged. As the arguments become a gish gallop, the individual arguments begin to hold little value. 
from quoting people like Fauci, Doshi, Don Bell and Offit, we're now getting people like Del Victory, Catherine Fitz and Vodark. From doctors working in medicine and researching medicine, to TV producers, a banker and a politician. Further and further down the rabbit hole we go, citing how this is not only an experimental vaccine, which it isn't, but also the government that is in bed with the big pharma, how we're being tested for our compliance and blind trust, and everything suddenly becomes to look a lot like 1984, a book being misused for quite some time now to argue that we have a new world order coming. So let's try to end this on a somber note from The Animal Farm. Does anyone remember that? The other book from George Orwell, everyone kind of slides under the rock. Because in 1984, the information available was very finite. One paper, one government. And in 1984, people like Big Tree and Bodak would be a part of the Thought Police exec, posing as freedom fighters to lure free thinkers into a trap. The fact of the matter is, there's a vaccine skeptic material available everywhere. There's medical researchers questioning the Operation Warp Speed and Fast Track initiative based on potential safety issues. Australia, New Zealand and other countries have managed to beat the SARS-CoV-2 virus without a vaccination at all. So to those of you who haven't read The Animal Farm, the story is the farm animals overtake the farmers to become free, but things don't go so well. It's a story about how a few animals, the pigs, use the rest of the farm animals to overtake the humans, setting themselves as the new leaders. The creatures outside looked from pig to man, and from man to pig, and from pig to man again but already it was impossible to say which was which. As I look at Bill Bigtree, Andrew Wakefield, Yeadon and others alike, one thing I see very clearly are business folk who lost a lot of money. Yeadon lost a fortune on a failed drug against eczema. Wakefield had bought stocks in a competing measles vaccine when made his now retracted measles study, and Bill Bigtree was an unknown producer who had produced episodes for Dr. Phil and The Doctors, jumping on the fame bus with Andrew Wakefield, all looking for some kind of fortune and finding it very easy to convince vaccine skeptics to fill their pockets. None of these people are exposing the medical field from the goodness of their heart. With the mRNA vaccine, there's a new chance to draw attention away from the scientific papers like Nature, Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine and others and back to the vaccine skeptic world where things get turned and twisted without any real conclusion being brought up. Because instead of funding a study to research the potential safety concerns of the Pfizer vaccine, the focus is solely to force people to avoid getting it at all. The focus isn't on clarity, but on testing the blind trust of the vaccine skeptics. There, comrades, is the answer to all our problems. 
it is summed up in one single word, vaccines. Thank you.